I read your record. You got a big mouth. That's why you're sent from one toilet to the next. Me? I don't plan on spending the rest of my life doing this. Oh, good for you. Now look, this radio is just silly. You try and meddle, I want you to know what you're meddling with. You got something to prove, prove it to yourself, not to me. I'll see you around. If you're looking for money, you're smarter than you look. If you're not, you're a lot dumber. I'm probably a lot dumber. That can be very dangerous. Episode 89 of the Colt Matt and Mark Colt Film Review Podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Mark. Make sure to head over to our blog at coltfilmreview.blogspot.com or shoot us an email at coltfilmreview at gmail.com. And if you're interested, head over to Mask Books, M-A-S-Q-U-E Books, uh, for news on my upcoming novel, Nova Byzantium. should be out in November. Uh, show news? Any show news this week? Yes. What do you got? Oh, I mean, no. Oh, never mind. <laughs> Okay, this week our movie is Outland, starring Sean Connery, released in 1981, plot rundown. For Marsha O'Neill, played by Sean Connery, the Jupiter moon Io is just another dingy mining town on the final frontier. When his wife leaves him and takes their son with them, it merely confirms that Though he's traveled millions of miles, his life is going nowhere. Then he notices that miners are dying in strangely psychotic ways, walking into space without spacesuits, carving up prostitutes, etc. With the help of Dr. Lazarus, played by Francis Sternhagen, his investigation reveals that the miners are ingesting a lethal drug that speeds their work efforts. He learns that the company that runs the town is behind the drug. He confronts the town boss, Shepard, played by Peter Boyle, and soon has two hitmen heading his way with a plan to kill him. As a second tick down to the next space shuttle's arrival, O'Neill plots to meet them and faces the biggest challenge of his life. He doesn't plot so much as just sort of hang around and load shotguns. Waiting right. for them to arrive. And then when they get there a little early, he starts running around like a crazy person asking for help. Yeah, you know what? I, I, I did have a problem with that. If you have a single point of entry into this mining facility, couldn't you get some of these pussy-ass marshals that are all sort of in on the take, but you could sort of wrangle them with threats of indictments and subterfuge? And Well, I think... I think the- that setup really goes to say how little power the uh, marshals have on this company town. In fact, they're just really there for show, and they don't have anything to do other than to just keep the, the workers from getting too crazy. They don't really have any power because he doesn't have the power to just arrest the general manager. He doesn't have the power to file reports back to some non-company overseer. The, the truth is that the, the federal uh, marshals on this mining operation i guess the space station that supplies these various operations have no real power i think is what the film's trying to tell us uh they seem kind of like as powerful as un peacekeeping force they really do nothing other than separate two drunks from fighting that's kind of their uh, only ability 
they have even less power than that. They have about as much power as a mall cop does have to arrest the oper- <laughs> the uh, CEO of of a mall. Yeah, that's a good that's a good analogy. So if you had a mall cop that uncovered, let's say, some drug distribution ring that was happening out of Hot Topic or say zoomies who knows and yeah he does a little detective work a little gumshoe work and finds out that the uh, ceo of westfield malls incorporated is in on the take and uh all part of it uh his ability as a i guess a non-commissioned police officer to go ahead and uh try to bring this to trial using avenues of i guess the respected police force would probably go nowhere would it would imagine, go right? nowhere. Basically, he's been showed from one shitty mall to another <laughs> because he's got a big mouth. You're fired, fucker. Go up to Everett Mall. That's the <laughs> shithole of the Puget Sound, my friend. So, yeah, I think that's, I think that's what the movie's trying to tell us. I, I find it a little amazing that they give him so much firepower, but yet they have no real power. The movie is not really very consistent on saying these marshals are completely powerless. They're a force outside of the company. But they have no real power. So the movie's not totally consistent on how little real power that Sean Connery has. But the only way you can interpret it based on the end is that they have no power. Except they have all the armaments that they need. Plenty of shotguns for some Well, reason. okay. So what we have here in this film is we have a retelling of the classic Gary Cooper film, High Noon, which I've seen once. And it's basically the same premise. I don't really remember what instigated the hitman's arrival into the small western town. But you have a cowardly, uh, I guess, populace unwilling to help Gary Cooper. So he has to go it alone, which is Mm -hmm. a classic western theme, uh, as we know with uh, our experience in Iraq and our uh, cowboy George W. Bush president. It's sort of a go it alone, got to go it alone. You know, we don't don't have anybody else with us. And so it's a Western theme, uh, although I'm sure it was extremely scarce and rare in the actual West, that attitude. But uh, it doesn't really matter because that's not what matters in American culture. It's the myth, not the history that we all embrace. And so in this film is basically a carbon copy of the film uh, High Noon with Gary Cooper. And... It stretches to sort of make that segue into the sci-fi realm. Uh, I guess some things about this film. I love its look. I think the production design is pretty solid for early 80s. It it leverages a lot from films like Alien to make that sort of working class, blue collar, outer space feel genuine. Uh, but it's not, and I'm going to say this, this isn't a science fiction film. Agree or disagree? This is a science fiction film, yes. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Uh, the setting is a- science fiction. I mean, you could say, oh, it's not hard sci-fi, man, because uh, the human society is really just the same as it is today. Is that your imitation of me? It's just a, re- it's just a retelling of uh, standard Western tropes. Wow, listen the, to you. You know, see, technology hasn't really influenced natural human behavior, and these particular conflicts that you see here are conflicts you can see in any modern period of man. There's uh, Mark's uh, egghead impression of myself. No, it's not It's not an impression it's of you. It's more of like a uh, Doctor Who geek or something along <laughs> those lines. I mean, the standard conventional definition of science fiction, yes. It's set in the future 
where we're mining the moons of Jupiter. I, you just can't say it's not science fiction. Right. I, I, you know, but to, uh, this is, yeah, it's sort of a confusing. Go thing. ahead and say that it's not science fiction. Well, the way I think of science fiction is you have to have a concept, technology, or a theme, or ideology that can really only occur in speculative conditions like you have a piece of technology like a time machine or a spaceship or something that uh, uh, you build the story around and can only exist because of the spaceship or the time machine. In this case, like I said, it's a retelling of uh, the Old West film High Noon. Uh, you're right. It, it, it has. This could be. This could be an. This could be a mining operation in deepest war torn Africa, where you, sure. where you're separated from the normal powers of society, and allows untoward things to happen within large organizations. Right. Well, right. But it also does uh, an argument for this film being science fiction. Even though I just said I don't believe it is, is that a lot of times uh, we've seen numerous examples of where you retell a futuristic tale like Battlestar Galactica the TV show did you ever see that uh the old one or the new one the new one I saw the first season or two they had the whole sort of Iraq occupation commentary going is that uh, when I they think... were uh prisoners of the Cylons I just saw yeah. the slightest I saw a couple of those I, don't, I didn't right. really follow the whole storyline Right, and so what they're doing is they're making current social commentary using, I guess, science fiction settings and themes, which I believe is legitimate. Uh, it seems a little ham-fisted, and maybe that's why I'm critical of it, uh, but it's also a way to, uh, I guess, comment on current society without getting your feet wet, so to speak. Uh, Ursula Le Guin did this, I think, with a film I want to call it, uh, forest is the word for planet or something like that. But she uh, basically extrapolated the whole Vietnam conflict into sort of an interstellar war uh, and was able to make, I guess, some kind of poignant idea about the Vietnam War and our involvement with it. Well, how how can any piece of fiction not be a reflection of the society that the person who's in it is coming from. Isn't that always, can't you always make that argument? Isn't it impossible for that not to be the case, at least with some sort of relatively reasonably tenuous thread? True. I'm arguing my counterpoint. I didn't really mean to do that or intend to do that. But uh, the thing that, to not answer your question, and to move on, <laughs> I, I think of, I guess, stories that... Um, are transcendent of their genre. And, you know, a good example of that is Akira Kurosawa and his films. I mean, he basically uh, was able to transcend, transcend Shakespearean theater into samurai feudal Japan. And also in turn, uh, people, filmmakers, Sam Peckinpah specifically, I think it's Sam Peckinpah, took, uh, was it The Seventh Samurai? and turned it into the Magnificent Seven, and made a Western out of it. And so there you, you know, Shakespeare-inspiring, uh, samurai cinema-inspiring Western film. Uh, he also inspired 
George Lucas to do Star Wars based on the Hidden Fortress. So there you got, you know, science fiction kind of injected into it. So maybe nothing's original. Stories are transcendent. Maybe that's the best kind of stories. And maybe that's what we're seeing here a lot. Outland is a retelling of High Noon. It is a retelling of High Noon. But I always have a problem with the fact that if you can recast a story, a science fiction story, into another genre, then you're not really dealing with what I would call genuine science fiction. Although it does have some of these elements and tropes to it. It, it doesn't, doesn't seem as cutting or as thought-provoking, and maybe that's my snobbishness coming through. You know, It's not like Blade Runner where we're talking about uh, what if we could create human life and how would we respect that human life in the future? And that, that whole thing, that's sort of blurring the lines of humanity. No, absolutely. I agree with you completely. You're right. This is basically sort of a, this is a Western more than. Yeah, but it's a really fun Western. And I think what I really like about it is how well it complements sort of the outer space notion, how you can uh, see this as plausible. And I think that's what I liked about Outland is the plausibility of the setting and the story I thought was a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it didn't need to be in space. And I think if it would have been just in some company town set in like the Wild West, like a machine, it also would have been a very, it would have been just as good, this story. Yeah. And the film production, uh, it it only violated... I guess the rules of science once, and I don't know if you if you remember that. that well, that there's scene. one main problem uh, on a title card right at the beginning of the film. It says the gravity is one eighth of Earth here on Io, yet uh, and it, it, they filmed it as that being the case when they left the station. But whenever they were inside the station, gravity appeared to be normal. Now, obviously, that would have been an unreal, unreasonable production conceit for such a film. To film everything in what apparently one eighth gravity, but that was a glaring error. On I think it was. They could have set it in a. They didn't have to set it around Jupiter. They could have just set it around some Earth-sized or Earth-mass moon somewhere else, and not I know, really but dealt I, with the problem. Well, they they did try to stick to the plausibility, and yeah, you're right. Uh, you can't really simulate one six or one eighth gravity. You can. It's a pain in the ass. They do it. Whenever they do an extra space station activity, they they put some ropes on the characters and make them fall slower. But I, I often wonder, like, uh, the moon. I think the moon is comparable to Io, gravity-wise. Uh, but you always see the astronauts kind of bounding across the, the lunar landscape, you know, with kind of this, uh, this sort of sponginess. But what I wonder is when you're, like, sitting in a familiar space, like if you could recreate a domicile and maybe some office spaces on the moon or in this case, IO like what would everyday shit be like, like, uh, you know, picking up a cup of coffee and setting it down, uh, you know, sitting for instance, what would sitting be like in one six gravity? Uh, would you sit in your chair the same way or would you find yourself, you know, and kind of weird, awkward positions because it didn't hurt as much. And you might find some sort of equilibrium of comfort a little bit different 
I think it ended up making a lot of changes. I mean, the coefficient of friction would be quite different for everyday objects interacting with each other. You simply wouldn't be as tied to your seat as you are now sitting here speaking into a microphone. There's a weight and a sort of that interface is really quite solid between my ass and my uh, shitty bonded leather surface that I'm sitting on. Right. Yeah, and you get that scene where Peter Boyle's playing simulated golf in his office. Oh, and, no, yeah, the uh, ball would never move like that. I don't know. See, that just gets my, my brain thinking. And I, this movie obviously couldn't do it due to production issues, but, uh, you know, just like what would water look like going down the drain in 1-6 gravity, all this kind of stuff that uh, nobody's really uh, experimented with. We know what things look like in zero gravity because we have astronauts up on the space station fucking around with juice balls and spit and vomit and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, what's it, what's it look like in microgravity? Speaking about space movies, this director has a really interesting uh, catalog of films, Hyams. I mean, he did a movie. He's done a couple movies that I've always wanted to see but never have. First, Capricorn 1, and uh, that, which right? they must have dealt with the gravity issue in that movie. You know the general plot of that film. Yeah, and it's also uh, did, spoofing the, the, the moon landing. Is that the idea? Yeah, the idea was what if the U.S. faked the moon landing? Right. And uh, the other thing is um, 2010, which I thought was a really nice little uh, science fiction action-y film, follow-up to 2001, where they did deal with the gravity rather realistically using uh, centrifugal forces to simulate gravity in some circumstances on part of their vessel. And when they were out of those areas, gravity was, uh, they were just living in microgravity which I thought they filmed really well in that film. So certainly Hyams has dealt with the idea of filming different gravitational forces in his movies. Yeah. Here it's, uh, well, the one thing, I I don't know if you mentioned the gravity, but there's that one scene that really makes the uh, schism pretty uh, apparent in the plausibility realm. The jail cell, which I thought was ingenious, but not really. Yeah, why were they floating in the vacuum? I couldn't quite understand that. Was there like air blowing up or something? You see a big sign that says zero G. Yeah, like, how would they do that? Oh, they have artificial gravity. <gasps> well, and, Holy shit, I never realized that. And see, I always have an issue with sci-fi that injects artificial gravity, because I, I believe artificial <laughs> Gravity is a is a is a total uh, bullshit. You can simulate some of the forces by using inertia. You can't have a plexiglass wall, and then on the other side have some dude floating in zero gravity, and then on the other side you're you know sitting there at one g. It's just not. It's, well, there's just no way can, to do it. You can have it in like realms like the star trek universe but you can't have it in this mining operation in the near future on jupiter where they're using crts to look at computers yeah right (laughs) yeah you have to give them a pass on that one yeah you know i I guess i never really thought about that i thought it was a great idea to basically use a a vacuum as your barrier which is a cool idea the maintenance must be a real bitch because just imagine the guy's got to change his suit out every once in a while. Well, it would if you just had him in zero vacuum, that would be kind of cool. Because for starters, uh, he wouldn't get violent because he'd be in danger of fucking up his suit and killing himself. Mm-hmm. So you'd, yeah. you'd give that like automatic sort of regulator on behavior. You wouldn't have to straight jacket him. You wouldn't have to like you know chain him to a bed. So yeah, you can walk around here in your suit, but don't pull on that cord too hard, or you're going to be fucking 
glue on the inside of your suit, you know. So that was kind of a cool idea, but the whole floating part, yeah, you can't really do that. At least uh, I don't think you can do that in the next 200, 300 years or wherever this movie was supposed to be set. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, it's supposed to be so. set in a pretty near future sort of thing. If there was something that was like it now, it sort of feels like it's, if, let's just say there was some sort of substance on Io that we found today that would actually make it economically feasible to go and mine there. I mean, it was really worth the trillions of dollars it would cost to actually do it. This place feels like a place that we would build in the next 20 years to actually accomplish that, right? That's the feeling of this place. If it was worth the money, that's what we would make. I can't imagine a lucrative lucrative enough mineral or element that you would do that for right now. It, It would have to be, it'd have to be something it would have to be something extraordinary that I can do. I don't know if you could probably not even name a material that we know uh, of that would be worth it. I can't. They were, they were mining titanium. Now titanium is pretty valuable. And it's uh, expensive. It's not, it's not the, the most, uh, um, plentiful ore in the crust of the earth. You would have to find something that you're completely fucking out of. And you would need to go there. You would need to go there because that's the only place in the solar system to get it. And without it, you could not expand the human race in, you know, any kind of fact. It was like the weak link. You had to have that element. Well, only in that way. So its market price would be high enough. But as far as a business opportunity, there'd be plenty of businessmen will do whatever it takes if they're going to make enough money and profit. Correct. Yeah. So, yeah, you would have to make it lucrative enough. And, yeah, titanium's a, a, a good... Uh, uh, it's light, and it's a rare ore. So, I mean... Exactly. I guess if you're going to have something, uh, if we really need a ton of titanium... I mean, we use quite a bit. What is it, like 10% of uh, like commercial jetliners are titanium? That's a lot of well, titanium. Well, I'm trying to think of what exactly is special about titanium. High strength. I think it has a low... Uh, thermal expansion coefficient. I, I believe I could be wrong about that. Uh, it's basically what the entire SR seventy one was made out of mm-hmm. was titanium. And so I it think can't that be that a, rare. It can't be that rare, but it's <laughs> it's fucking expensive. I've I've yeah. used it in some stuff that uh, uh, I've worked with to design, and it's usually used in high thermal environments, and it's used in. Uh, places where you need light and strong and thermally resistant, and that usually uh, equals expensive. And titanium is about as good as we have. It's about the expense of mass. It's about as expensive by weight as gold, right? Uh, I think it's light. I think it's kind of close to aluminum as far as its weight. I, I don't know. I know, exactly. but by weight, its cost is similar oh, yeah, to yeah. gold. Yeah, it's just fucking outrageous. So, yeah, that's what we have here. And it's better than unobtainium, I'll tell you that, for a plot <laughs> device. That's, yeah, well, I mean, I have a feeling that when they were when they were flushing out that movie, uh, Avatar, they had this conversation we just had. Okay, why are we going to go through all the trouble to attain something? Well, we have to have something we've never heard of that's absolutely fucking amazing. And then somebody said, yeah. Unob- some guy who took a... A college level engineering course said unobtainium. Yeah, I, I, it's I guess it's as good as you could get at that point, you know, yeah. without uh, without going in a big data dump and 
another subplot to rationalize why you would travel to some exotic moon in a different star system to go mine it. But here it's titanium, and we're just going to buy it. And it doesn't really matter for the plot. You yeah, know, I mean, fun. they could have named it something better than unobtainium. They could have come up with a sciencey name like polydichloricuthanol. <laughs> or dilithium, which I dilithium thought was funny. Dilithium crystals, yeah. yeah. Yeah, can you you could never make a dilithium molecule. That's why it's so fucking rare, man. That's why you need it. <laughs> so it's the only way you can get enough uh, millicochrons going in it's your work field. As long as it's in a lattice of uh, kryptonite, I think really is where you. What you got to do is you got to shoot some tachyons in there to recrystallize it. <laughs> it's the only way. <laughs> Yeah, you just have to get the uh, the uh, positronic matrix up and going in order to do the uh, calculations to do that. But all in all, we can agree. Aside from these sort of uh, sort of you know, which are you can understand why they, uh, you know, not not the worst science missteps as far as no. as the as the as the setting goes. We can all agree that the setting, the sets are all pretty pretty top notch and and realistic. Right. And I would argue that you would explode if you went into zero vacuum kind of like, you don't think so? No, no you wouldn't your face wouldn't that. blow up like a balloon and your guts wouldn't fly out. You just start hemorrhaging fluids through your skin and you die. You'd turn into a gigantic bruise, right? And you you'd bruise just... up. You would not explode like somebody pumped a shotgun shell into a uh, pumpkin. Yeah, when the guy comes up and he's in the elevator and his guts are all hanging out, yeah, I yeah. guess that's no, not No, uh, that wouldn't happen. No, no, no. You unless just, he did you, that himself in some kind of fit as he was, uh, uh, you know, dying. Some sort of seppuku? I doubt it. Uh, okay. Well, you know, so we're sort of getting beyond the setting here. We're sort of uh, going in and speaking about the general conflict in this movie. And the one thing I really like about this is that it's not supernatural. There's sort of a, a sense at the beginning, because I think that people are, some of the viewers are thinking this might be a supernatural sci-fi sort of thing. It ends up being just sort of a, your standard run-of-the-mill drug problem. Yeah, exactly. Which, which I really, I really like. Even if they call the drug polydichloric euthanol, I think it's, I think it's really cool uh, that it's just... Standard old uh, corruption, that's the problem. Well, you know, and and I was watching this, and uh, I guess I, I was trying to navigate the morality. Uh, you know, back in the, the 80s and the just say no and drugs are bad, obviously the morality is clear-cut, right? It, it makes sense that this marshal takes small a stand. Cop. Yeah, the small cop takes a stand against... Uh, the use of drugs that are obviously causing people, driving them to psychosis and suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's not good to, to, to give something to somebody that's going to kill them. We all know that. Uh, yet on the other hand, uh, you have the whole, I guess, increased productivity and willing participants in this whole, you know, operation uh, from the people that are allowing it to the people that are pushing it to the people that are consuming it that you often at least I often wondered watching this I was like you know it's the ass end of space and you got a bunch of uh, you know I've worked in these kind of remote factory operations and they do breed a certain kind of loon uh, willing to kind of go out 
and spend significant amounts of time away from society and civilization to perform monotonous, horrible, grinding work. Uh, they're escaping something. I, I always got that feel. And I'm kind of using some of my experience working in remote Alaskan fisheries to, I guess, leverage some of these comments. But, yeah, I was like, you know, what if we just said, hey, you know, a few bad apples, uh, you lose two or three psychotic people, and one of them cuts up a hooker. But, man, that productivity is just going right through the roof. You're getting so much titanium you don't know what to do with, and you just have to allow a little bit of drugs into the installation. Where's the harm in that? Well, if you want to do just a cost analysis, everybody's getting more money because the mine's more productive. And uh, what did the title card say at the beginning of this film? Just like 1,300 miners and then a few hundred support staff. Yeah. And so if we look, uh, Marsh Shepard, the general manager, came in, what, something like a year or so before O'Neill gets there? And uh, productivity has gone through the roof in that time. And remember what Dr. Lazarus said about the number of people dying. It's only been increased the last year or so. And the totals are somewhere under 50 uh, sort of psychotic suicide events. So you're talking about over the year, uh, 50 people have died. And you got to wonder if the productivity of the whole facility is up, way up. Uh and we're going to attribute this to the drug, you must guess that a lot of those 1,300 people are taking this drug. Could yeah. it be half? Uh, let's say it's half. Half's a good number. Let's say it's half. So let's say it's like 750 people. I mean, 650 people, and 50 people have died. So it's somewhere on the order of uh, ooh, 10 per- is that 10% death for I don't users? Think it was somewhere less like was 5% it? death? I figure with the numbers she was talking about, the events were small in a fraction compared but the to users, like 10%. But, but if you got 50 and you had 650 people taking the drug, that's almost 10%. Let's just okay. say it's 5% over the year, 5% of the users die. Is that worth all these you know, 1,500 other people being paid more? It might be. It's certainly well, worth it to Shepard, and it's certainly worth it to everybody else on the facility that's aware of it. You know, I was watching this and thinking of our current, what I would call, uh, predatory capitalist model here in the United States. And if you want to take that position in morality, uh, uh, we have CEOs making decisions daily that ruin people's lives and uh, send them into, I guess, catastrophic financial conditions and uh, could be in turn catastrophic health conditions as a result because of loss of insurance. And nobody gives not a shit uh, because shareholders are happy. They make a ton of profit doing it. They don't have a problem axing people's jobs and getting rid of them, moving their jobs around. Uh, they're ruining lives on a daily basis. Uh, so this operation is ruining a few lives to benefit the whole if you argue from that point of view, then feeding workers or offering them amphetamines to get more work done isn't outside the bounds of any kind of morality that that uh, is not already, you know, all around us, in my opinion. 
Uh, I think it's evil and maniacal and psychotic, but it's not anything that's exceptional. <laughs> you know, and so watching this, I was like, yeah, it's, uh, you know, and maybe that's why this, this, this is more of an interesting movie than uh, just kind of your standard drugs are bad kids, don't do drugs. Uh, fight the use of drugs it's it's more of like fighting i guess sort of the machinery of capitalism at least that's the way i'm thinking about it well i mean uh o'neill goes so far as to say that he's a rotten piece and a rotten part of a machine and he wants to know if he is he really a rotten piece is there really any good in him which is why he's finally making his stand here against these well, uh these uh, machinations of the general manager and I think the sort of division manager above him that's based on the space station. Obviously he's seen this kind of thing before, right? Yeah. And, and it just, and it just got to him this time. Well, I think uh, he's, I think he's bitched and moaned before, but never really done anything about it. Just enough to get kicked out and sent to some other toilet. Right. Yeah. So, you know, uh, and he makes the decision to not be a part of it by going back to earth. So he's because, frankly, uh, I don't think he would have a job working anywhere else. I mean, who would who would want to have him in their installation if they even had nary a whiff of corruption going on or exploitation, uh, that sort of thing? Are we, talk, are we talking about O'Neill here? Or are we talking about uh, Shepard? I'm talking about O'Neill. Like, you know, uh, who would want O'Neill working anywhere else? This is well, a, probably the uh, organization that Fran, the or, organization. I mean, Shepard talks about this. Is that the Federation of Industrialized Nations, with, which give this mining permit to the, the mining company, would be upset by this because they probably have a public and some sort of uh, voter base to deal with. So I think that when he blows it out of the water in the end and sheds some light on it, I think things finally do get resolved. You got the feeling. You hope. I mean, that would be the happy ending, right? That yeah, would, yeah. That that that, and you get the 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 uh, old uh, time worn Doctor Lazarus making a comment to such that she wants to stick around for the shit to hit the fan because it'll be fun. Yeah, you gotta have you a know? feeling that you know there's been enough deaths and enough uh, exploding greenhouses that uh, even <laughs> even the people upstairs that are way even beyond the company, like in the government that permits this operation and the movie's clear to tell you that. And I think that's why the movie takes the time to give you the title card at the beginning that shows you sort of the arrangement of power for these mining operations. Why uh, O'Neill wouldn't just go above the heads of the company from the get go. I'm not sure. I I just don't think he's maybe the brightest person in the world. Well, and yeah, I think you get that there at that comment at the beginning. (laughs) He has a very, uh, I don't know. You get the feeling that he's been pushed around, but he just can't be pushed around anymore. And then there's that scene uh, with the briefing with Shepard where he, uh, you know, gives that hint that he should just mind his own business and break up some bar fights and uh, just go on his go on his way and don't don't mess with things that you don't really understand or mm-hmm. you know aren't. And and so then he gets upset about it. So. It sounds like he's seen it before, but this is probably the most blatant example of somebody telling him to, you know, just uh, 
mind his own business. And yeah, this one's really bad. It's so bad that even he can't do more than just run his mouth off and get kicked, booted out. He's gonna. He right. feels like he really has to do something. And it's sort of, it's sort of weird that there's not a whole lot of other people that are interested in doing the right thing. I mean, nobody is. None of his. None of his officers are interested in helping him it goes so far as probably the worst character in this movie is ballard the new sergeant that replaces montone after montone kills himself uh, oh yeah because of his guilt and yeah. uh, how he comes sort of the faceless automaton of uh of uh of, of uh, G- general manager shepherd's uh plan to to kill o'neill it's weird that he can just get away with killing o'neill it sounds i just I just I wonder things get are, are pretty out in the open at this point while people are running around firing shotguns in the station. It seems like well, there's going to be a lot of trash to sweep under the rug when this is all said and done, and it's going to be surprising. I mean, everybody on the station knows that Shepard's decided that O'Neill needs to be killed. That's why everybody lays low during the yeah, final half hour. He didn't even film. really need to intercept. Uh, digital communication between Shepard and his uh, paymasters on the space station. He could have just, you know, hey, uh, what's going on? It's like, oh, you know, they're sending a couple guys to do you in. Like, oh, okay. (laughs) Because everybody obviously knew it. Well, I think think he had to know when they were coming because he didn't – he had to know that there were no more basically thugs on the mining operation for Shepard to command and the new ones were coming in. And that's part of the whole tension about when is the shuttle going to get here and all the shots at the clock. This movie is runs a little long. It seems like they could have upped the tempo a bit on this film. Maybe cut. They did, man. They shortened the, the shuttle arrival by 40 minutes. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Uh, yeah, uh, they, <laughs> they did. We didn't need to sit there and uh, watch the clock go down for 60 minutes. I mean, this movie ran 61 hours. It was really, really, we just spent hours just sitting in the bar having beers. You know, I, I, as a kid, I saw this movie when it came out in 1981. I saw it in the theater. And as a kid, oh, man, this the, this movie, I think I even saw this before Alien because Alien was a little bit too much for a 9-year-old or an 8-year-old at the time. But I did see this movie in the theater. And it got, I guess, my imagination rolling so fast and hard because there's a lot of cool stuff in this film visually that uh, – I think is maybe a little bit ahead of its time. It's like really fun to watch. Uh, I loved the holographic pole dancers. I just thought that was awesome. I thought that was a nice touch. And I, a fairly I, they were supposed to be holographic. I thought they were just that, had a club light above them. It didn't look like they were supposed to be holographic. Did it? Uh, I get the is impression that they were. That they were. I, I couldn't, no. you know, maybe as a mystery to the day, but uh, I would think that they're going all the time. Like, you know, who could keep up that? that but they time? weren't. They weren't there in some of the later shots of the bar. I know, but like they had turned it off with the music or something. So you think mm. they were real? I thought they were holographic. Oh, that's just, right. Right, but it was a good effect, whatever the, whatever they were doing. I thought it, it was, was pretty hot. Effect. Yeah. And uh, the, I don't know, like when the shuttle arrives, I thought that was kind of cool. Some old model stuff that is kind of gone from filmmaking today. There's a lot of nice model work uh, done in the film, a lot of matte stuff that I thought worked really well. Yeah, I thought Um, that was generally pretty good. Kind of the ominousness of the mine 
you know, you get a sense of the danger of the working conditions, especially since it's in zero G and there's all these, you know, going through the airlocks and all these getting ready to go on shift. And it kind of reminded me of uh, a documentary I saw on sat diving. I don't know if you've ever uh, heard Saturation of Saturation diving? Yeah, where uh, guys more or less live under pressure for weeks on end and go up and down in diving bells and live in these little uh, pressurized chambers on mm-hmm. barges. And then when it's time for their shift, they go back down on the bell and then they mm. work underwater at like 500 feet for 12-hour shifts and all that kind of stuff. And it's just fucking incredibly dangerous. And the guys that do it are complete animals. And it just seems... Yeah, you would- you would you'd guess that all these miners here are those, that same type of guy. They're probably paid really well. Right, yeah. So you get sort of that, you know, you get that nice sort of blue-collar, uh, crazy-ass motherfucker feel to what it must be like to sort of work something like that. You know, work. Well, sort of like a fisherman. The, you have a feeling that they're the sort of fishermen that they'll go out and fish for a couple months. So they'll come back and blow a few thousand dollars at the strip club sort of guy. yeah. Well, and I've always had, you know, I, I learned to dive, oh, it's been a while now, seven or eight years ago. And I thought if I was a younger man, maybe less educated, I think, like, I would fucking love to be an underwater commercial diver. I think it's just, just like a badass, brutal, odd, alien world to work in. You know, doing, like, underwater welding, like, on some fucking deep diving rig. I mean, how bizarre is that? It just, it's so alien. And to get to do that work, and you would just kind of feel in a league all your own. I think you definitely, you get a high off of doing that. And so that's kind of the feeling I got watching this is sort of, you know, if you were, why would anybody go out to the ass end of the solar system and work some horrible, hideous job? And there's a little bit of adventure to it. I I could Mm -hmm. definitely see people doing this job. You know, and like you said, coming back just flush with cash and yeah, you know, doing stupid shit with it. I, I I was wondering why I picked this film, and I think it was because I just saw it at such an early age, and so it sort of stuck with me. I've seen it numerous times. Uh, there's stuff that I find really cool about it, like I like the blood dripping up in uh, after the guy gets killed in his cell, you know, from the hose, the blood that's dripping up towards the ceiling. Yeah, that made uh, me I think just, those that little uh, scenes. What? What? That's another thing about that scene. Why is it dripping up? I don't know. I, I don't know, but it just seems pretty cool looking, huh? Yeah, it's cool looking. Uh, what else is cool? Uh, just kind of the eeriness of it. I don't know. Just uh, it's just sort of surreal. Like I mentioned, the the bar scenes were cool. Uh, just hit me at the right age, I think, and inspired me, uh, science fiction wise. Uh, kind of at that point where I needed to be inspired. And I'm sort of wondering what younger kids, you know, people that are maybe 10 or 20 years younger than me that are into what, science fiction or have gotten into science fiction. What would they say fiction. about this right now? Well, say, not get off my ass, sh- old man. I'm playing Grand that's, Theft Auto Five. Well, I wonder what movies have inspired kids today. Like, where are the, the great uh, kind of, Maybe a little camp, not campy, but a little cheesy science fiction movies uh, that have inspired a generation. Because there's a ton of them in the 80s uh, that I just love dearly that I could never give up. But, you know, is there a ton of them in the 90s? Is there a ton of them in the 2000s? Uh, These movies that, you know, are current 
that kids glom onto uh, that they find fascinating and thought provoking and spur their spur their imagination. I can't think of anything, and maybe I'm just a burnt out shell and nothing can entertain me anymore. But I think uh, I think that's that might be part of the situation. I think we'd have to go and ask one of the ax one of these kids. Ax <laughs> one of these kids. The only thing I can think of is like some comic book movies. You know, well, I mean, uh, ax once... them with an axe. We have to open yes. up their heads to see what's inside. <laughs> oh, um. So why don't we go see what professional critics said about this film back in '81? <laughs> we return to uh, the venerable and past. Vincent Canby of the New York Times for the review today. I'm sort of surprised that Ebert didn't review this one. It seems like it's sort of be up his alley. Um, he says that uh, Bill O'Neill, the main character, refuses to wink or look away when strange things start happening at the uh, mining camp, even though production is up and profits are soaring. And when the showdown comes, it's Bill against the world, uh, and the world being the mining company's greedy uh, agents. So he says that um, Peter Hyam's Outland, is, am I pronouncing that right, Hyam? Maybe the oddest looking Western you've ever seen. Being set not in the American frontier, where it's always 1870, but in outer space, specifically on Io, in the non-too-distant future. He says, this uncommonly handsome science fiction movie sets, its narrative, uh, sets a narrative that recalls High Noon. And he says it has some wonderfully effective chases. And he says he really enjoys the performances of uh, Connery and Sternhagen. Though I also really liked uh, the uh, turn by Peter Boyle, one of my favorite comedic actors. I think he really does a nice performance as the affable, affably menacing uh, general manager of the facility. Yeah, Peter Boyle's great. And I think he really carries it. I'm surprised that... Uh, uh, Camby didn't call it his performance as well. He says, um, you know, basically goes on to tell, tell the, the story of the movie. He says that it's, uh, the movie itself is an unpretentious achievement, which I think you're right. It is it's a straightforward action movie. And that, um, uh, O'Neill's decision to fight the drug trafficking is, uh, an attempt to bring some humanity back into this mining world that seems to be synthetic. And that uh, he says that Hyam doesn't, um, Hyams doesn't spend too much time uh, talking about sort of the internal struggle of the characters. He mostly focuses on the action, which I think makes, he says makes it an enjoyable movie. Yeah. Yeah. So and uh, un- that's underneath that's the, it. He has it labeled as space opera, which uh, oh, did I he think say is space appropriate. Opera in here? No, well, it's that. on the bottom. It's if you look there in the bottom of the review, I think he just categorizes it as space opera. Oh, he categ- he just says what type of movie is a space opera? That's interesting. And actually, that's an extremely opera. good categorization of the film. And the point that I was trying to make earlier about the lines between science fiction and not science fiction, uh, space opera is a nice, I guess, uh, shelf to put this on because it falls mm-hmm. into line with things like Star Wars, which yeah. is bona fide space opera. Uh, basically, 
opera uh, as being melodrama- melodramatic with sort of straightforward themes and straightforward characters and simple plots, but set in uh, a space environment it has the set dressings of outer space and all that good stuff uh it's just in that context so it's a very good categorization it's probably the word i was looking for earlier on all right anything else on outland does this movie deserve better than it's 58 percent on rotten tomatoes is it really that bad uh 58 percent is a splat right and, yeah, sixty percent is the fresh, or is it sixty-five is the fresh? Somewhere and it gets there. a pretty even fifty percent with the top critics. Uh, I think it deserves better. I, you know, yeah. and and I, the reason I say it deserves better, well, it deserves better in hindsight because it stood the test of time. It's still a very enjoyable movie to watch. Uh, you know, besides some of the antiquated sci-fi-ness of the movie like CRT screens and simple computer interfaces and really antiquated uh, voicemail video mail systems. Uh, you know, it, it, it follows through and I've watched this movie over and over uh, throughout my life and any movie that kind of hits that, you know, nail on the head, I, I don't find worthy of 58%. Uh, you know, there's tons of movie that are, that are at a hundred percent that I would never watch again. So, but maybe that's my own personal definition. Uh, so we should change yeah, it to a 73% then, I'm guessing. A good solid 73%. I did want to point out one thing about the technology element. And it's not just this movie, but it's sort of our historical futurists who believed that, you know, phones were okay. But wouldn't it be better if we could see each other like ie skype and have skype conversations all the time and you know you'd call somebody up and you'd see their face instantly and it's interesting how we've gone the exact opposite direction of that uh we want less intimacy with our communication and i that's why we have text messaging and now it's funny. I don't think people realize that this episode, we're actually this conversation is actually a text message episode. And then after we're done texting each other, we go and record our text messages separately. Exactly. I mean, it takes us like what ten hours to do it. Uh, I, mean, it's- I mean, I had to go down to part time because it was taking so much time to reread <laughs> all this shit and to get the intonation so it sounds fresh. Sometimes I have to re- I have to throw away the whole recording and start over. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, besides that, no, I had a, a, a guy, he, a contractor, he was putting in a fence for me. And I just kept getting these fucking voicemails after voicemails from him. You know, I'd look on my phone and there'd be two voicemails about when he was going to show up and, you know, uh, when he needed to get paid and how much stuff was going to be. And I would text him because I knew he could read texts and he could send them because he did it. But no, nope, he would just keep calling, keep leaving voicemails. And I'm like, oh, fuck me. I voicemails are so toxic. I fucking they just I get them and it's just it just I just sigh and I go oh oh and then I have to push like five buttons and then I have to you know do something with the voicemail after I listen to it like delete it and I always forget what key on the pin pad is, is it seven delete? or is it three to delete it depends on I which just, voicemail system you're using well thank god for die. automated transcription systems that's the only thing that saves voicemails to me it's the only reason i even get the information that's in a voicemail these days is because both of my phone services fucking automatically transcribe it 
into sort of some sort of pigeon English. You, right. discern, you get some of the basic values out of it. It's good enough. Is it readable? I mean, is it like uh, you get the gist? The names the will be gist. fucked up, and if they mumble some things, it'll be screwed up. But usually, you're not leaving a voicemail to say more than what you could put into a text. So, right. I mean, I guess if it was a really complicated, complicated voicemail, that you could you could listen to it. But I, I can't tell you the last time I listened to voicemail. Who's except who's at work. leaving you voicemails? Who's doing that? Oh, just people do it occasionally. It's mostly um, like doctor's appointments and oh, stores, yeah. things like that. that. They they, they right. do voicemails still in their uh, automated I get them at, on top of that. I get them at work and we have like I am at work, you know, like, uh, uh, but it's intercompany I am. So mm-hmm. everybody shows up on I am and I have a pager so you can page me. Uh, but I still get voicemails. I still, you know, I have email. I always tell people I'm away from my desk so much, just leave me an email. I check email, you know, once an hour. Uh, just leave me an email if you need to, to get a hold of me. And uh, why I continually to get voice, continue to get voicemails from people who could easily just find me another way. <sighs> well, Matt, have you, my soul, have you done the prudent activity and removed your phone number from your email signature? Just don't put idea. your phone number there. I don't. I don't put my phone number on anything unless it's things are getting really complicated, and it's really best to take care of it with a conversation. I just. I just sign it with just my email address and my name. It's oh, good. Plan. Saves me a lot of phone calls because people Wired. have to take the trouble of looking your phone number up on the directory, and they don't do it. They just send you an email reply. Wired magazine always has diatribes about voicemail and why isn't it extinct, and I always really enjoy those. You know, I was like, why? They had some statistic, like only one out of five voicemails ever gets listened to, you know, which I thought was pretty entertaining because mm-hmm. I hardly listen to them. I go, who called me and left a voicemail? Oh, it was my dad. I'll just call him back. And then I call yeah, it's him just, back. It's a, it's a generational thing. It is a generational thing. Yeah. It needs to die along with that old generation. <laughs> Don't worry. Logan's run it time, will happen. Logan's just run. imagine what the millennials the are saying about us. God, they're still yeah. texting. Why don't they just tweet me? <laughs> Why don't they just twerk me and then tweet me? <laughs> okay, uh, the movie next week is I... Muriel's Wedding. It's a uh, it's a really interesting film told from a female perspective, which I think that we don't get a whole lot of in our choices, basically because we're men. But the main character, Muriel, is really interesting because she's a dork. She's a total fucking dork, and she's coming into adulthood without any of the tools and socialization you need, which sort of felt like she seemed like I felt when I got out of high school. I mean, I had no tools, didn't know what the fuck I was going to do, and uh, I don't know, it's just a really interesting character story of her, and it has a great soundtrack of all ABBA songs, which is really good. <laughs> so is it? would you classify it as a chick flick, or do you think it's something else? I think it has Not more to flick. say to women, but I think maybe... It has the most to say to the socially awkward dorks of the world because that okay, is what this main enough. character is. And it's about her finding her way, you know, just stumbling through early adulthood. And it's really interesting. That will be our 90th podcast. We'll be oh, my God. Wedding. I know. Ten away from the big 100. So I was thinking we should do a bonus episode for in addition I'm, to the 100th. I'm cooking something up. We'll see if uh, see if I oh, really? uh, get it done in time, which I probably won't. 
Mark's got some plans. So, so if you have some ideas, uh, send them my way. Okay. All right. Uh, until next week. You know something? I think this rug has a slight break to the left. <laughs>